Well, hello and welcome back to Aim in Practice, where we dive deep into the world of practitioners and we explore the intricacies of wellness and we also uncover the true essence of what it means to practice. I'm your host, Jess Reynolds, and today I am absolutely thrilled to share a conversation with a remarkable guest, Jeremy Cornish. Now, he's not just an acupuncturist, but a visionary who views a practice as a living organism with its own anatomy and physiology. And this is a super cool perspective. Jeremy has this unique way of looking at wellness where he believes in cultivating an ecosystem around our work, where we consciously create experiences that offer deep, lasting transformation and, of course, empowerment for our clients and patients. Now, his methods, they're rooted in nature. We talk a fair bit about Taoism and the natural process in this conversation. We talk about allowing practitioners to maintain a healthy balance of time freedom. And this philosophy of his enables a life rich in family, self-care, and of course, hobbies. Now, his work extends beyond his own practice. Jeremy's developed a beautiful system called Modern Vitality, focusing on aiding people globally with chronic illness. He also mentors practitioners with his bespoke program in the Damn Good Doctors Club, proving that his methods are not just effective, but replicable. And this is also really cool. So whether you're a seasoned practitioner, a student of wellness, or someone simply fascinated by the interplay of natural principles and health, this episode is a treasure trove of insights. So grab a cup of tea, settle in, and prepare to be enlightened as we journey through the multifaceted world of wellness practice with Jeremy. Well, Jeremy, thank you again. I'm very grateful that you've taken the time to chat with me today. I've actually really been looking forward to this conversation. Uh, over the last little bit, I've had a lot of conversations with massage therapists and a couple osteopaths. And well, I, I do massage therapy. Primarily my practice is acupuncture. So talking with other acupuncturists is just like, oh, it feels so good. So I, I really appreciate the, the the time you've taken and, and I'm really looking forward to this chat. So what I like to do is is the same way I always do. Um, I, I really like to know what got you into this this business, this industry, because it's, it's uh, usually they're strange stories, particularly us acupuncturists. We come at it from all different angles. So let's start there. Uh, what got you into what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for reaching out. This is a this is a real treat. I've listened to some of your episodes, and I, I like the tone and the vibe of the the world you're creating here. So I think this is going to be a cool venue for some some new ideas. Um, I'll try to keep my story relatively short, so we can focus more on things that are probably going to be helpful for other people. What I can say is that a lot of people have these really cool stories about how they got into acupuncture. I remember a teacher I had in school who used to be a cop, and then he was like chasing a criminal and got hit by a car, and then wound up having shoulder damage and acupuncture is like the only thing that saved him and they quit the force. And I don't have anything cool like that. Honestly, my story is just that I was so, I was in the martial arts world, right? And I was so fascinated with this idea of, because you get exposed to these kind of tangential liniments and uh, point striking and all this kind of stuff. And you'd see these charts on the wall of where to hit people and all. And I, I got so fascinated with this like energy concept. I was like, I don't know, 18. And acupuncture kind of became the next, well, acupuncture became the extreme end result of that type of thinking for me. And what I did, I learned a lot about myself uh, in a pretty crazy week, but I, I had this plan where I told myself that I was going to go to learn massage and go learn Western herbs because they were faster programs. 
Yeah. So I could go from whatever I was doing. I was doing like construction and hanging drywall and waiting tables and these kinds of things while I was just working through a liberal arts education, right? Which all this stuff has come back to serve me. All the weird skills and interests that I've, I had 20 years ago, more than that, have come back to feed into the way I approached the, the profession, which actually I'm really grateful for all the weird stuff I did when I was kind of trying to figure out who I was, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But I thought, okay, I'll take the next little step. Let's go learn massage therapy. Let's go learn Western herbs. And then I can do that. I can work my way through acupuncture school. And I was telling myself a story about who I was, how I was so reasonable mm-hmm. and incremental, right? And really inside, I just wanted to skip all that. And I just wanted to be doing needles. That was right. really like what, you know, <laughs> what was going yeah, on. But yeah, I, I yeah. wanted to be somebody who was very measured and deliberate. And what wound up happening, I enrolled in a uh, a school. It was a very small school. And it did everything I wanted. Massage, Western herbs, all that kind of stuff. Very quick program. And I was all set. I was ready to rock and roll. And I got a phone call about a month before I was going to drive off from upstate New York, where I was living down to the desert uh, in New Mexico to go to the school. Uh And they said, oh, we have to close the school. Um, The two people who run it, one of them's pregnant, one of them's sick, can't do it. Sorry, here's your refund for your tuition. And I I went, "Uh uh-oh. At the same time, like my car died. Uh, I had a bunch of dreadlocks, Mm because why not, right? now? I was like shaving those off. It was this whole big uh, catharsis reinvention week. And I realized uh, at that point that I should just go for it. Right. If I just really wanted to learn acupuncture anyway, I, I tried to do the slow and steady incremental thing where I mm-hmm. weave towards my goal and uh, that, that wasn't on the table. Right. So yeah. I took that as a sign and I just packed up all my stuff and bombed down to acupuncture school. And it's embarrassing to say now, but I mean, I got to that school and I didn't, I didn't know what acupuncture, I didn't even know it was good for pain. <laughs> like, I, get it. I, I, I don't mind admitting it. I was just so enamored with I, I'm in a wormhole. I got. I got to find out what's there. Mm-hmm. And when I got there, and they were talking about, oh, obviously, you know, people come for pain and stuff. And I was like, really? This is good for pain. <laughs> and they're like, how did you get here? You know. But it, that's. Yeah. I I just have been learning over the years to just kind of follow that, right? So yeah. sometimes it points you to um, things that you don't think is going to make any kind of sense or you don't know a lot about. But if you can listen to that, and especially when you get the external nudges going, hey, guess what? That plan you had, that school's closed now. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do? Mm-hmm. So yeah. that's kind of how I wound up on the slippery slope that led me here. I love it. I absolutely love it. Uh, sim- similar experience, funnily enough. Like my, my background is all in trades. And when I went to acupuncture school, I'd never had acupuncture before. I knew almost nothing about it whatsoever. There was just something that's like, you should go to acupuncture school, right? So I, I get it. I get that that sort of like you just you follow it, and and I'm curious, like like for you, you said you, you follow that, you know. But but what is that for you when when you you feel or hear, you know, you have like this this internal monologue that is is repeating, or is it like a body sense? So what was it that that kind of told you, you know, this this is the way, other than the obvious external signs of schools shutting down and cars breaking down? But, but was there something that, that you knew? Yeah, you know, we're uh we're rational creatures, right? As humans, that's what we like to tell ourselves. But we're we're really just rationalizing creatures. Everything's mm-hmm. so emotional and subconscious. And to try to to try to give our our the front of our brain the credit for making decisions and things, it's really uh it's a hard story to swallow when you start looking at the whole rest of what's going on and how much action is in our subconscious constantly mm-hmm. all the time. And there's a double-edged sword there because we can be influenced subconsciously as well, right? So 
a lot of our driving and our decision making, people have a hard time differentiating what's actually their intuition versus what's something that's been kind of embedded even from day zero of being born into a certain culture, right? Mm -hmm. There are certain cultural values or family values or whatever kind of conditioning that we come in with. And that all hits our subconscious too. So it can be really tricky actually when you start to try to go, okay, I'm going to just listen to my intuition, but what, how much of that is actually your intuition? Mm -hmm. Right. And then some of the things a couple of years ago, I started really geeking out on this was like, okay, can we train our intuition? Because some people don't trust their intuition and it's not because there's something wrong with them. It's because they've listened to what they thought was their intuition, but was actually just subconscious conditioning and gave poor results. So now they've turned that. I mean, this was something I was doing with patients, right? Because a lot of healing is very intuitive. It's like, listen to your body when you're tired, sleep, when you're hungry, mm -hmm. eat, you know, it's all these, yeah. these Zen <laughs> sayings. It's, yeah. it's there, but we, we block ourselves. Right. And I don't think we block ourselves because we're dumb or mm -hmm. there's something wrong with us. I think we block ourselves for good reason. It just has to do with not knowing how much of it's actually our intuition versus somebody else's subconscious conditioning going on to us. And this isn't something that I've figured out and I've just flipped the light switch on it. It's a gradient and I'm, I'm constantly trying to examine my own motives for mm -hmm. things because yeah. we talk about fate and free will, right? And it's like, well, how much, how much free will do you have if your preferences and your desires were fated? Yeah. So even if you do what you what you think your life calling is, but that was somebody else's dream or somebody else's goal or some cultural values that are manifesting through you, how much of that's actually you? So if we want to start to take hold of our life trajectory, I guess, as, as much as we can, we have to start asking these kinds of questions and they're not fast questions. This is like oh. slow burn, simmery kind of stuff. But yeah. looking back, I can say that there was something, I think something innately uh, resonant with the tendencies I have as a human. Uh, and, and I can say that because it worked out, mm -hmm. right? Going down this road opened up doors and gave me avenues to express um, kind of innate tendencies and traits that I have that do well in that arena, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I would say by listening to myself, whatever, 20 something years ago, um, that was a good call, right? Yeah. But it's not always a good call because sometimes we do things that we think are intuitive, but it's really just uh, fear, for example. Like fear can protect us or it can just paralyze us and keep us trapped and being able to differentiate that and say, well, you know, I didn't go to acupuncture school because I was afraid. So I listened to my intuition on that. We're rationalizing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that's, that's a super important distinction and similar to what you're saying about a dial. I mean, it's something that, that I, I speak to and, and talk about often, but on a, on a personal basis, it's something that, that I, I outright struggle with at times. And at other times, I, I feel like maybe I've got a handle on this idea of intuition, but, but that, that listening to the fear, what, what I've come to identify is the, <clears throat> excuse me, the sort of powerful survival intuition that's that's in acute situations you know like like the obvious things the, the fight flight flee when there's something that is obviously threatening your life then it's like yeah listen to that fear intuition you know it's telling you to run run but with the the more like big life decisions for myself i've found that the the correct the the feeling that leads me to the ideal outcome tend to be 
pretty good feelings, you know, like, like listening to fear when I'm thinking about a big life decision, it doesn't really serve me too terribly well in the past, but listening to the, the like, oh, that, that feels good in this direction, that, that for myself has been more, more telling. So I, I kind of been able to distinguish those fearful things are valuable in the survival situations, but not so valuable in those, those long-term situations. Well, it's, yeah, it's good to keep that clear. I think the only trick is that our ego catastrophizes. So for most people, myself included, any kind of change triggers some sort of ego death symbolism. Mm -hmm. And this, this comes down to basically, I think a lot of the theories here is that we, we have this uh, craving for safety and this craving for routine. So our, our brains have evolved with whatever I did yesterday didn't kill me. I will do mm -hmm. that again. Mm -hmm. Right. If I repeat, if I stick with the known, right. And if, if we start looking at like, I, I love first principles thinking. And when we start to look at first principles of helping people heal, which means mm -hmm. they're going on some form of transformational process, yeah. then we wind up coming down with the hero's journey archetype, yeah. the whole wheel. Yeah. And it's really cool when these models start to merge because we'll have things like the known world, right? The status mm -hmm. quo, the normal world, the Frodo in the Shire, the Luke Skywalker living with his aunt and uncle, just like, you know, not, nothing's happening, right? Mm -hmm. it's, it's, it's boring as all get out, but it's safe. Yeah, totally. And then we'll have eventually, right? All these stories, and I know I actually talk about movies and stories and things. I, I talk about them a lot, especially with practitioners when I'm going through this kind of thing, because we have to be aware of the processes that our patients are going through that are entirely subconscious. Fortunately, it's mapped mm -hmm. via the hero's journey and other like uh, uh, traditional rites of passage and different frameworks. There's different ways to look at it, but basically you get similar kind of checkpoints along the process, right? And we have to look at what our patients are going through subconsciously because what they're ultimately asking us to do is to help them with some kind of transformational process. Even if it's something that we would consider like, oh, it's shoulder pain. It's no big mm -hmm. deal. Well, it is a big deal if they're in your office, right? Yeah. So there, there's a place to come from where you can start to respect all that. And then I say the next thing is to, instead of look at everybody else and how they're going through their transformational processes, look at ourselves, use the mirror universe and go, okay, how do I handle human transformational process, right? Am I the kind of person who prefers to stay in the shire? Refuse the call to adventure, play it safe, not grow, not do anything mm -hmm. risky or bold or anything like that. Yet, I've got my sign out and I'm asking people to come see me for transformational processes. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Because now we're in a recipe for a, a real problem. There's a massive asymmetry there. Yeah. So I look at all these kinds of things in a lot of depth. And some of the reason why I look at stories and films and all that is it's not because I think stories and films are correct. It's because these things like Lord of the Rings and Star Wars and Harry Potter and all these like big kind of classic stories, they strike a chord with the humans watching them. Mm -hmm. They're famous for a reason, right? There's something happening where our brain is going, ooh, I like that, right? And that's how we can start to tell. These are the breadcrumbs, right? To start to understand our own subconscious is what kind of stories do we gravitate towards as humans, mm -hmm. right? Despite culture doesn't matter. I mean, most of these, most cultures have transformational rites of passage that are at, at the very least, it's a three-part deal where there's separation, transformation, reintegration. Mm -hmm. 
you've got uh, the little boy is 12 years old now. He's becoming a man. It's time for a vision quest. He leaves the tribe, goes out in the woods by himself, probably is starving, starts hallucinating. Maybe he's eating special herbs or whatever. Something happens in there, gets a mm-hmm. vision, transforms him, comes back to the tribe, reintegration. He's got a new name. He's a man now. Maybe they got a wife waiting for him. You know, there's all kinds of stuff like yeah. that marks the, the reintegration. Yeah. These rites of passage, the hero's journey is just a more in-depth version of that. Instead of three parts, you can break it down to like 9, 10, 11, 12, something like mm-hmm. that, right? Depending on your, how you're doing that. But there's something innately human that likes that process yeah. and that understands that process. That's why even when we go to get married, the bride and the groom get separated from everybody. They're there with the priest or the officiator, some kind of agent of transformation who then pronounces a new identity, right? Renames them, and then they reintegrate, and you go have a party. Mm-hmm. This stuff's mm-hmm. everywhere. Go to school. You leave your family. Go do that. It transforms you. You come back with, hey, call me doctor now, right? And then it's like this, you know, they're like, what are you talking yeah. about? I changed your diapers. You know, I used to babysit <laughs> yeah. you. You're not, you know. Yeah. Then you got to deal with that. But mm-hmm. what, yeah, I'm, what I'm kind of getting at here is that our, our subconscious drives a lot of our behaviors. And instead of fighting it, we can actually dive into it. We can take the, the unconscious processes. We can make them conscious. And we can start to get better at accepting them and understanding mm-hmm. them so that when it's time to make a major life decision, we can go, okay, am I just trying to cling to the shire out of ego fear for ego death? Because becoming a new person is not what I did yesterday. It's volatile, right? I don't like mm-hmm. it. Pump the brakes. Mm-hmm. Or can I start to work through that and go, you know what? I, I have a fear response that, like you said, uh, would keep me safe maybe in an acute life-threatening situation. And my ego is confused and thinks that me going to school totally. to become a different person is life-threatening. Yeah. Right. So this is kind of the thing with like all the spirituality and I'm, I probably get in trouble with this stuff, but I'm, I'm constantly, especially now that I'm mentoring more practitioners and not just Eastern medicine folks, but a lot of them are Eastern medicine trained. And there's a lot of cultural bias within Eastern medicine that I've noticed, which tends to be, I call it being spiritually top heavy, where everybody's really interested in the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh chakra of activities. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But it's like all this kind of lower stuff. It's, it's, it's just too mundane, you know, and we do this uh, spiritual bypass and everybody, uh-huh. you know, expects if you're an acupuncturist that you're also some kind of guru. And I mean, I used to make jokes, I would get in trouble with this stuff, but I used to make jokes about yoga, which I, I love yoga. That was what I was doing, you know, when I was like 18, it led me, you know, down that same path with martial arts, all these things. But I would say like, just cause you like to stretch doesn't mean you're enlightened. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You like to stretch. You like to stand on one foot. Like that. That can be cool in and of itself. You don't have to now be a guru and tell other people how to live. Mm-hmm. Right. The, those aren't two things that have to go together. They can, but they don't have to. And so, I find the same thing with acupuncture and Eastern medicine is that there's this kind of weird, unspoken, implicit thing where like everybody with a needle in their hand is somehow expected to be some kind of oracle mm-hmm. right and it's like that's not the situation in china i mean you go to a hospital like in chengdu and these guys are just bombing needles in and there's no like life coaching happening they're they're basically like they're very skilled very skilled yeah very smart but but they're technicians they're just delivering the same protocol over and over again for mm-hmm. the 50 people that came in with bell's palsy that day mm-hmm. so our our culture we put a layer over top of that and I'm not directly opposed to that layer, but I say, let's explore it. Let's not take it for granted, right? Because these are, this is again, walking into 
a new culture of like, oh, I'm going to be a Chinese medicine practitioner. But you walk into that and you get the tint on your lens of that kind of stuff. You need to be able to see through it and go, oh, this might not be the clearest uh-huh. image of my reality, right? So I want to make that stuff optional. So becoming spiritually top-heavy, doing the spiritual bypass, it it basically becomes a way to start to, well, for one, we get nosier about other people's business. And then (laughs) two is like we kind of write off our own fears because that's the lower part of the chakra system, right? This Mm -hmm. like struggle for survival, these kinds of things. And a lot of people, they're just not comfortable there. They'd rather be sitting in in Seiza or Lotus position doing, uh, you know, some mudra and and feeling good and feeling that which we should, right? We should yeah. do. But you, you also got to have a base underneath because the people coming to see you, okay, so this has been my experience and I've, I've confirmed this with a lot of practitioners. I don't know that's universal, but the people that come in for treatment, the best patients, and by best, you got to define your own definition of best patients. Mm-hmm. I mean, for me, I know what I'm looking for. I'm looking for people that are committed and that will listen to things even if they think it's too simple to work. <laughs> Right, those kinds of patients, they can get out of their own way. Uh, a sense of humor goes really far, I think, with people that are on uh, trying to to get their life back. Very rarely do I get somebody coming into my world that looks like an acupuncture patient, meaning like they're all up here. Very rarely do those people tend to stick around or get the results that they deserve and could get otherwise. Mm-hmm. So I look for people. Most of my best acupuncture patients are just regular it's just somebody's grandpa you know or like the lady that works at the school teaching science it's these aren't like caricatures of spirituality coming into Mm -hmm. your office because when i do see the caricatures i always raise an eyebrow and i'm like okay i don't want to write this person off but like i'm going to need to talk to them in ways to make sure that they understand that there's going to be other things besides just like getting a buzz from the energy if Mm -hmm. if that's their goal right if their goal is to heal their you know, their, their bowel disease or to get pregnant or whatever, if they have a real goal, it's going to require real work. If they're coming just to experience acupuncture, that's no problem. Right. But to be able to designate that and distinguish that so that the practitioner doesn't get frustrated trying to do one thing for somebody who's trying to get something else. Mm-hmm. And, and what I mean by that, in case I'm not being clear, is that we can get stuck into binaries. And I know I've done this and I fell into this where I decided, I don't know, somewhere somewhere before my first decade in practice was had passed, I decided I was like interested in change with goals and deep transformation, complex chronic health conditions, right? That kind of stuff where it's like, listen, we need to mark where you are. We're going to get you back to your life. It's probably going to take a while. We can do it. Got a path, right? And then I would get calls for people from people and they would say, you know, oh, I'm in town on vacation. Um, I just want to get acupuncture while I'm here and, and, and whatever. And, you know, I was like, Rah, don't come in. <laughs> yeah if you're not going to commit to the 15 <laughs> the, the protocol then <laughs> yeah i'm like well i'm like what are we doing this is this is mental masturbation for me like you can go get a massage or something it'll probably be you know I, but that was an extreme way of thinking what i realized later was that it's not either or i ju- you just have to realize what people actually want and then if mm-hmm. that's something you can provide that way you're not getting confused about what's happening and having very clear systems around that has helped me a lot because mm-hmm. Like right before we started recording, you mentioned that you, you've worked with a lot of practitioners that are kind of in their first five years of practice. And I remember my first five years, it was ridiculous. Like the, the mindset I had was 
I remember when I first got out of school, I was like, if I can just be five years in, then when somebody asks, how long have you been doing this? I don't have to be embarrassed. <laughs> right. So that's what I was thinking. And I just had my fingers crossed and I was like, oh, I hope these five years go by. Like, I just want to stay in practice. I wish it was five years from now. Yeah. Why? <laughs> Why? So the beliefs have to change. And I call it uh, point A, point B, point C for practitioners. And point A basically is when you get out of school and in general, it's like empty time where you're, you just want to be full. It's mm -hmm. the, the pathology here is you go into hungry ghost mode and you're just like, I need more patients. I need mm -hmm. more patients. I need more patients. And when you look at your schedule and there's a bunch of white space on it, I know this was me. I'm in the corner blown into a paper bag, hoping everything's going to be okay. Yeah. <laughs> right. And what I did was as soon as I got out of school and, and before actually, but as soon as I got out of school, I focused very heavily on business education, business skills. I was reading things constantly, devouring podcasts. Like I just became Mr. Business Brain. Mm -hmm. That's what I did because I realized immediately that that was the meta skill that was going to unlock being able to actually use my primary skills to help people. Because if I've got this great acupuncture technique or I know all the herbs and all this stuff, it doesn't mean anything if nobody's coming to see you. Mm -hmm. And the way you bridge that is with business skills, which then, you know, this has been, I'm still learning this stuff. It's been decades now, but, it, you know, more and more refined ways of looking at these things, trying to make sure that there's an anatomy and physiology of your practice management skills. Mm -hmm. The same way we look at the anatomy and physiology of the human body. Yeah. This was actually a really cool thing that hit me a few years back was like, if I'm good at diagnosis and treatment of the human body, which is a complex, adaptive, nonlinear system, right? It's not a, which we can talk about complicated and complex systems if you want. We can go into whatever you want. But if I'm good at that with medicine, then I should be able to take the same skill set and transfer it to a different domain, which is practice management, which is also a complex, adaptive, nonlinear system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right. So my diagnostic skills. It's great. I can look at a tongue and take a pulse and, you know, pick out the herbs and all that stuff. But I also want to be able to look at systems in general and start to see similarities across the board and start to get that domain in independence where I can start going from one thing to another. And so I realized that just like with medicine, you've got to have an anatomy and physiology understanding of mm -hmm. the body, right? You've got to have the same thing with your, your business. Right. Yeah. Just, you know, we would say, oh, this is your skeleton. This is your nervous system. This is your, your circulatory system. If somebody didn't know that, you, you, I don't know how much you'd want their treatment. Mm -hmm. Right. And this is like fundamental knowledge. You got to just know kind of like the gist of how things work. So it's the same thing with our business. We've got these different anatomical systems where it would be the best way I've seen this presented. I've worked with other mentors and different kind of mastermind groups and stuff like that. And I've kind of grabbed models from different places, but, um, this is very dry business terminology, but I'm always talking about this is you have an attraction piece where you're, you're getting people into your world. There's some kind of conversion, which is really just education where people are getting to know like what it is you do. And then there's a, a sale process where some kind of threshold gets hit where they want to put their chips in because they go, Oh my goodness, you know, I think you can really help me. This is like nothing I've ever seen before. And then there's the actual product or your your process or your treatments or your therapies or your, your protocols, whatever it is that you're delivering on the other end. So if you can keep track of these four pieces of the anatomy of your, your practice, then you can start to keep your fingers on the pulse of what's going on. And when you start to see issues in different places, you can start to intervene in that complex system the same mm -hmm. way you would intervene with the human body. Yeah. 
So these kind of point A practitioners, it's like, oh man, empty space on my, my schedule. I need more patience. So we're looking at like attraction, right? Mm-hmm. Marketing, getting these things out there. One of the cool realizations that hit me with that is that before you start talking, you need to listen really well. And so I started putting systems around market research and knowing what to be listening for and taking something that seems dry and drab and I don't know, just not, it's very like businessy and kind of like makes you think of an Excel spreadsheet thinking about market research. You know, it's not sexy or like you would think, oh, this has nothing to do with what I got into this career for. But what I found out is there's an incredible richness to that. And when you start looking at market research, you're really just listening. It's having systems around listening and paying attention and connecting with people on deeper and deeper levels. The more interest you take in what's exactly going on with them, how it affects their life, what they've tried before, what they loved about it, what they didn't like about it, where that fell short, right? How much progress have they made towards their goal? What are their beliefs around things? What beliefs might need to change in order for them to be able to see what you can see when they're standing next to you? Right. There's a lot of stuff like this. And it's you can you can do it, you can do a lap around that and be pretty competent. But if you choose, you can just be spiraling like vortexing on this information forever, just really falling in love with your niche, with the people yeah. that you work with. And I think and, that kind of wraps into the the first thing you were talking about too, right? It's like doing the market research is one part of it. And the second part I think is identifying what what niche, what what need the market has you're best suitable for. Because what I've what I've come across with uh, with both myself in the past as well as with others I've worked with is do the market research and then find this 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 gap and it, it checks all the business boxes. You know, there's there's a demand for it. Uh, you've got the capabilities to provide to fill that gap. You know, checks all the boxes. So you say, I'm I'm going to work with um I, I'm gonna work with with pregnant women. That's that's the niche because there's huge demand and there's not enough supply. But then you realize, I mean, for myself anyways, in that particular example, I'd realized that's actually not something, one, I'm interested in doing, and two, there's all people that are a lot better at it than me. So I think that might be a part of the first the first thing we were talking about, which is kind of the, the intuition part, is you, you find this thing on paper and you look at it and you say, okay, I can build a business around that. But should you? Should you? do that, you know, in your case, should you go to the massage school, which makes sense, you know, it's the thing that checks the boxes, or should you maybe tune into the the intuition a little bit more and see if there's another gap somewhere else that you as an individual are more suitable to fill. Can I press on that a little bit? Is that okay? Yeah, please. Yeah. I know it's an example. You probably made it up out of, you know, just as an example about the fertility thing. Mm -hmm. But that type of thought process, I think warrants a little examination. Uh, because when we, when we think about something, okay, I want to do for, I'm just going to use your example. I want to do fertility. I can't because there's other people better than me at it. There's a lot of other people treating it, right? Those can be deal breakers. If we let ourselves talk ourselves out of the thing, Mm -hmm. this is again, it's the, it's the rationalization. It's giving ourselves a story so that we can move on. And what I would offer is that when we're at that kind of junction, we need to decide if we're telling ourselves the story because we're afraid mm-hmm. of taking that path and what that means for our identity, how we're going to get our subconscious needs met, how other people might relate to us, the fear of growing and being imperfect, all those kinds of things. Or if we're, we're actually just like our heart's not in it. And again, the same way, we're still just telling ourselves other people are better at it than mm-hmm. me. 
because imposter syndrome, that's one that comes up a lot. And I'm in the process of, of making a training on that with first principles of imposter syndrome and how this all works. Because once you understand how that's built, like what, what are the pieces, just the system's understanding of that kind of mental situation, we can see that the ways we talk ourselves out of things, one of those excuses is like, well, other people are probably better at this than me. Mm. I feel like an imposter, right? And then, then we go back to the Shire. We don't mm-hmm. go with Gandalf and go do the thing. You know, we go back to the Shire and we sit and we go, I think I need to, I need to find a new niche. Mm-hmm. right and then what happens with the next niche it's like okay well maybe i'll work with skin conditions and then you're like well guess what there's people that have been doing that longer than you too you oh, know totally. whatever niche you, you stumble into you're always going to be new at it so yeah if we're going to let ourselves excuse ourselves from taking the journey we need to find an excuse that's not going to transfer across any possible <laughs> yeah. route. i think that's sense? a super important distinction right and and uh, i suppose to clarify and, and build on that is is for um, using that same example, which is it, it, it could be a literal example because there was a period of my own career where where I was seeing a lot of fertility clients and I was getting good results, but I didn't like it. I just flat out did not enjoy that process. And I think that yeah. that's an important distinction. It's like, do you not want to do it because because of the competition, because of the fear, because of uh, the things you were discussing, or do you do you actually realize this isn't something that fills my cup? It's not something that I, I genuinely find an enjoyable part of my practice. Right. Sometimes challenging to determine the reality because one can trick themselves fairly easily into saying, "No, I'm just, I'm just not interested." In when in reality, it's still fear. So a lot of serious self awareness. Yeah. The 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 things we do oftentimes we need to get past the good reason to figure out the real reason. Yeah. And the kind of other thing around that is to be able to come at ourselves with curiosity, compassion, uh, a spirit of exploration as you mm-hmm. kind of go inside yourself and not be judging yourself. Because that's another one too. It's like, if I say these things, like, I mean, I'm ruthless with this stuff, but I'm ruthless with myself too. I don't put people through the ringer I haven't been through. I mean, I've had teachers that are, I mean, it's like surgical. They, you know, especially in the martial arts world. I mean, some of these people, it's, it's just, it's amazing. They can see right through you and it's like, okay, show me, you know, you can't be scared of that. So I try to create an environment where we can have these conversations without people getting, um, beating themselves up or getting defensive or projecting that right onto me who's got I got my little magnifying glass out and whatever else you know but it's it's like you come in peace you come to explore mm-hmm. you don't come to uh, shame somebody for having cognitive dissonance because we all mm-hmm. do oh yeah right but it's like which our <laughs> doctor means teacher right that's kind of the root latin teacher the best teachers don't just talk at you they teach by example mhm right? Teaching by example, that's just called leadership. So if you're going to be a good doctor, or like I like to say, a damn good doctor, you better be prepared to become a leader. And there's no way you're going to be a good leader without a ton of integrity, which means you have to look inside more even than you look outside. So a lot of the stuff with the practitioners, I mean, I, I have some questions like this because we, we need to go through this kind of process to alchemize our own selves basically from top to bottom, right? Not just third eye, happy stuff, singing home mm-hmm. and whatever else with crystal bowls. That's cool. That's the dessert. That's the treat you get for asking yourself really hard questions about your own cognitive dissonance, how you're post-rationalizing things, uh, what kinds of contingency narratives you set up so that you can fail in a safe way and still tell yourself a story about how you're great. Like mm-hmm. all these things. I don't mean you, like you specifically, I just mean all of us. We, we tell ourselves these stories so we can, we can say we're great. So, for example, something with that would be like a practitioner who um, 
maybe maybe I'm going to take a case, take a, a hard case, uh, like let's say pandas, right? You know, pandas, the autoimmune mm-hmm. for kids. It's mm-hmm. it's these are intense cases, right? I think Eastern medicine is one of the best things for them. To be honest with you, I think we have a lot to offer for for this population group. Well, let's just say hypothetically that you get one of these kids with a basically an inflamed brain, right? Autoimmune brain condition. And you're going to take this case, but you also don't know if you're going to be able to help the kid. Mm-hmm. So w- one thing we could do is we could just not do any research whatsoever. And we could say, I'm just going to show up and do the basics and whatever else. But what we've done secretly is we've given ourselves a way to fail. So that later we can tell ourselves, well, I'm sure I could have helped that kid had I looked in the book. You see, we leave these little paths open. I call them contingency narratives because it, mm-hmm. it's a contingency story you can tell yourself later if things don't go well. You fail on your own terms, yeah. right? So instead, we have to go, okay, what if I do everything I can so that I leave none of those stories available? So that I know that if I go, if I were to go back in time, there's nothing I could have done better or different. And if I fail, I failed and I can, I can handle that. But I know I'm going to fail on my own terms, not because I left the narrative open, but because I did everything I possibly could yeah, for this it's hard, hard right? It's hard. Like if you, if yeah. you do do everything and you fail for, for confronting that, it's hard to be like, even though I tried everything <laughs> I could, I still failed. Yeah. There, there's a yeah. lot of serious ego resistance in there, but, but that contingency contingency story that you're talking about i think that that makes a lot of sense it makes a lot of sense why somebody would do that because it it does ease the pain you know if there's some some suspicion that maybe you can't treat this it it certainly needs pain so it makes sense it doesn't necessarily mean it's it's the ideal path and i I really like what you said about this this uh doctor is teacher teacher is leader right recently i've been preparing for this this workshop i'm doing um and i've been really diving deep into this book called um 15, 15 agreements, no, 15 commitments of conscious leadership. And it's so fascinating because I'm reading this book and it's all about just leadership in the business world. And the examples they give pretty much universally is uh, business, either in the tech industry or the, the banking industry, like these, these typical businesses, right? As I go through this entire book, I'm like, this might as well be called 15 commitments of a conscious wellness practitioner because it's the exact same thing. It's like, these are 15 things that whenever we walk into a room, we need we need to be be very mindful of because as that leader position, the, the, the doctor position, if we don't if we don't have our own stuff, at least at least being mindful of it, at least doing our best with what we have in the moment, man, that can come out in the treatment room, be it in in ego because you're you're not doing the textbook because you haven't developed the self awareness to know that you're trying to create a contingency story, or you know, there's so many <laughs> things packed into it that. My my genuine belief, and this is a huge emphasis of my own uh, personal and professional life right now, is is letting practitioners know, like, you got to do the work. Like, you got to do the inner work, and you have to be super mindful of your own stories that you're telling, because it, it does come out in your capacity to to treat as effectively as you are, are capable of doing, right? So, so, again, I really appreciate that pathway that you mentioned from doctor, teacher, teacher, leader, because ultimately, I think we are. We are leaders in one capacity or another, right? Oh, yeah. And and that's the thing too. I've noticed a lot of practitioners um, can have baggage around the term leader, and they they project or they'll say things like, because I, I talk about I don't know how exactly you found me and invited me here, but I talk about all kinds of stuff, and it all pretty much threads back to the same core principles and themes. But there's a lot of applications of this stuff, and and I'll attract 
practitioners into my world for different reasons. There'll be something they like about, for example, like we can talk about nonlinear business models, which is really cool, where you, you actually get real-time freedom, not just being on Zoom doing Dell Health, right? There's a whole mm-hmm. different deal. So they might be attracted to that. And then I say, listen, if you're going to try to get this model to work, there are things you have to develop within yourself new qualities, new skills. You have to be able to, to learn how to do it because it's, it's not normal. This isn't the stuff we inherit from our, our school training. This is a whole different deal. You've got to be able to, to do personal evolution. I'll help you as best I can. Right? But one of these things is becoming a leader and, and being able to put that hat on. And I've had practitioners who are great. I mean, really insightful, just brilliant folks. And I, as soon as I say leader, it's like something happens. And I'm like, what's going on? Well, because in their mind, leader just translate straight to authoritarian, mm-hmm. right? Power. Oh, power is evil. Power oppresses people. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's a power company that puts electricity to your house. Does that oppress mm-hmm. you or does that enhance your life? Like these are words that don't have to have uh, a triggering negative charge on them. Mm-hmm. Right? Again, it's cultural conditioning. And I like to try to set people free from that. Another one too is leader. How am I supposed to be a leader if I don't know everything? Mm-hmm. Right. Well, there's this really great uh, Japanese word that a lot of people are familiar with, which is sensei. And I mean, coming through jujitsu, I've had a few good senseis. And the cool thing about sensei is it doesn't mean the master who knows everything, right? It just means somebody further on the path. Mm-hmm. That's it. It gives respect to the never-ending path, right? The, the, the mountain mm-hmm. with just like an infinite peak. And it just points out like, hey, here's somebody who's who knows these, these trails and these turns and these switchbacks and the pitfalls. Here's somebody who's just been further than you. They've been yeah. doing it longer and, and they can help you. Yeah. They can speed up your journey without shortcuts, just a more direct journey, right? That's a sensei. That's my favorite type of leader because now I don't have to be perfect. Mm-hmm. I can show up as myself with quirks and flaws and imbalances in my five-phase constitution, right? I don't need to be a perfect circle of a human. You can have rough edges. But if, you, if you've got something where you can help somebody legitimately on the path that they're trying to walk anyway, or open their eyes to a different path and show them what you can see, and then they're like, well, I'm doing that now. Like, take me there. That's all it takes. Mm-hmm. So like some practitioners, they go, oh, I've got imposter syndrome. I can't lead the patient. There's other people better at fertility than me. Great. Yeah, there's all kinds of people. Yeah. I always go back to martial arts because the, the dynamics of how that's set up, it's it's very resilient to the, this kind of uh, negative self-talk because it's mm-hmm. like, well, you don't have to be the best martial artist in the world. You've got to be able to help the people who are in your class. Mm-hmm. Can you do that? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that Can you help the patient sense. in your room? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the idea of leader for, I think for a lot of people, it creates this image of like, you, you are at the top of the mountain with the flag and the top of the mountain, there's only one, one person at the top of the mountain holding the flag. And it's just, what do they say? They, it's, it's lonely at the top, right? So it creates this mental image of like, you're here. And then in order to be a leader, you have to have climbed the entire mountain. But the reality is all of the best leaders I know, they're, they're being led. You know, they're, they're, they're leaders in the sensei capacity and the fact that they're 20 steps, a hundred steps, a thousand steps further along the trail, but they're looking up and they're being helped out by somebody else on the trail. So it is this, this cycle of a good leader is the one who, who says, 
I don't know everything, right? That thing you said that people are like, how can I be leader? I don't know everything. Well, simply acknowledging that actually makes yeah. you a phenomenal leader. Like that, yeah. there you go. Perfect. First You're step hired. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you don't know everything and you just admitted it. You nailed it. You nailed the, the yeah. leader position, right? So, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's challenging, but there's, um, there's, there's certainly an identity shift that has to happen. Uh, some form of, like you said, the, the internal alchemy that has to happen where somebody can adopt that um, capacity within themselves and deal with any negative ideas they have behind it, right? Oh, yeah. And I mean, so much of this is our cultural conditioning and the education system we've gone through and all these kinds of things. I mean, there, there's a lot of stuff. It's nobody's fault necessarily, but it's like when you want to, if you want to go to whatever the next level looks like, and this has been my experience, it's been the experience of people that I've learned from, and it's been the experience of people that I've kind of taken up with me under my umbrella a little bit. If there's a next level, that means you're going to have to be willing to grow and change as a person to get there mm-hmm. in some capacity, right? And, and to be able to re-examine some of the cultural conditioning that's basically kept you where you are, it's not always easy. Mm-hmm. It's, sometimes it requires a very delicate touch. Sometimes we, we can't come at these beliefs with a pointy finger. It's got to be kind of more of a, we have to orbit it a little while. Mm-hmm. And it also can't even come from other people. You know, I mean, uh, my instructors can be a voice for me. I can be a voice for others, but eventually something's got to sink in where people internalize the new perspective. And Mm -hmm. this is really cool because everything that I'm doing is fractal and applies back to the patients as well. So if you want to help your patients with deep transformation and all that, you've got to understand those same principles that you can't do it for them. You can't Uh just tell them what to do. Like they've got to be ready. There's going to be, you've got to start to identify those secondary gains, contingency narratives, uh, all the different mechanisms of self-sabotage and why the person is choosing and voting with their subconscious, like a majority vote to kind of stay where they are, even though the minority vote is like, I'm in your office. Uh Help me. Uh And to be able to take a look at somebody and, and kind of within the first time of meeting them or encountering them, kind of have that eye and go, okay, what's the voting like here? Like, are you, are, are you going to be really stuck or are you kind of close to being able to really make some changes? Mm-hmm. And where is that? And then not even approaching that with this like really uh, serious tone, I suppose. Like, I think having some playfulness around it helps because a lot of times, okay, I'm going to tell you a story. A lot of times, in my my limited experience with Eastern medicine, there were kind of camps in the school of some practitioners were very like Shen oriented. I want to treat the spirit. I want to treat the Shen. And I get it. I get the appeal to that. I love all that mystical stuff. I love it, right? It's kind of by nature. It's like a misty mountain and there's something happening and there's some kind of little level of experience that's just waiting for you. And if you can just like lean into it, you'll, you'll find it, right? It'll open up. Mm-hmm. The reality is, you can treat the Shen without treating the Shen. And I would suggest that going obliquely is like the best way to do it anyway. Because when you try to, like, it's like squeezing water. You try to hold on to it. It's just going to shoot out your fingers. And a lot of times, what I noticed was the tone of all these treat the Shen type practitioners was this very solemn, careful, metered tone. It's like there's this fragility. Like the Shen is there, but like we might scare it, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like the, I always pick on the yoga community. I love the yoga community, but I always, I, you know, I pick on them relentlessly like too. too. <laughs> yoga I'm a part voice. of it. Like we don't have to, <laughs> yeah, we don't have to always whisper about everything. You know, there's different yeah. types of things. And so back when I was still getting haircuts, uh, you know, before 
I made this identity shift. Yeah. I would go get a haircut. This, this lady, she was my favorite to get haircuts from. And she was this um, Italian lady and she would just be cutting my hair. And we would just be talking about the most ridiculous mundane things. I lived in Chicago at the time. So it was like, she lived, she lived in the city. She was telling me like city stories, just this depraved stuff. You know, it was just like, it, it was just fun. I would laugh, laugh, laugh. And I came out from a haircut and I walked past a, you know, the, the glass window. And I just saw like the reflection. I've got my new haircut, but I also saw my smiley face. Mm-hmm. Like I just had, I had left her station already. You know, I was, I checked out, I was out, I was out on the street and I still had this like stupid grin on my face. I just yeah. couldn't shake it. And in that moment I went, this is the Shen. Well, of course it's joy. Yeah. yeah. You don't need to, to rationalize some kind of point name to explain mm-hmm. your treatment of why it's going to be the best thing for the Shen. Like you can, right? But we can also get out of the way of it. We can be more oblique and we can just show up as vibrant, like fun humans. Mm-hmm. Get the resonance going, right? Let the heart rate variability sync up, get the coherence, start laughing, connect with people. And, you know, I mean, I came out of there feeling better than there's acupuncture treatments I've left. I didn't feel that good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so something cracked for me where the, the domains broke and I went, okay, treating the Shen could just be showing up and, and not being so careful about your words and being so mm-hmm. overly spiritual and all that. Sometimes treating the Shen is, is literally just being yourself, not being afraid to swear. Uh, I mean, I, I, I would use an old whiskey bottle as a water bottle. Mm-hmm. So I'm coming up on one year of no brick and mortar. I'm entirely online at this point. But when I had my clinic, I would roll up in the morning with this whiskey bottle that was going to be my, you know, a little bit of salt, some lemon juice, whatever. It was like my little morning drink. And this patient's in the parking lot already waiting for me to come in because she's early, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, I see where that's going. <laughs> and I'm stumbling out of my car with the bottle in my hand. And she's rolling down the window, heckling me, taking my picture. You know, she's like, this is what I like to see. This is the acupuncturist I want to go see. Look at this guy, right? What a mess, you know, mm-hmm. look at you. Come here. And she's, she's taking all these pictures and, and, you know, all this stuff. She got a kick out of that. Mm-hmm. We had a great time. You know, she's laughing her head off. Her Shen, and, mm-hmm. and not just hers, my Shen too, because I'm standing in the parking lot. I'm supposed to be getting set up for the day. I'm not. I'm out there talking to her and we're laughing about whatever else. Now we got talking about some other thing, right? And the other mm-hmm. patients are coming and there's now people in the parking lot going, what is going on here? Jeremy's leaning on somebody's car with a whiskey bottle. They're cracking up. What am I missing out on? They want to know what's going on. No needles have been opened, no herbs, nothing. Everybody's having a great time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's something to that. There is something to that. It's, it's huge. And I think, I think there's a few things you said is, is really just, just being you when you go into that treatment room. Like when I, when I first started my practice as well, that, that, whole, that whole practice of Shen, you know, the whole spiritual enlightenment thing, there was a huge appeal to that. And I, I wanted to be part of that world. And, and I, I, I saw these people who were, who were in it. And I'm like, yeah, you, you look the part. You know, you got the flowy clothes and you got that soft, flowy voice. And I'm like, I want that. But but then after years of trying to do that, I realized like, actually, you know what? I'm a farm kid from northern Alberta in Canada. I swear and I cuss and I rarely take things seriously. And and you know, like that that's just me. And once I started to do more of that, I found 
by not talking about the, the spirituality and not, by not going into the, the overt language of Shen, just by being down to earth, being me. Like you said, there was this, this allowance for authenticity, allowance for more comfortable joy to flow through the session as well. So by, like I said, obliquely, coming at it obliquely, I mean, a lot of the clients I see nowadays are stress, anxiety, depression, arguably spiritual stuff. Mind you, I treat it physi physically more than I do spiritually. But the approach is so rarely by, you know, putting in yin tong and do 20 and, and talking about the spirit. It's just like, let's just talk. Let's just enjoy each other's company for a moment. Huge, huge effect by simply being who I am. It, that's so powerful, you mm -hmm. know, but that's the thing. We got to get out of our own way. We've yeah. got to get out of our own conceptions of what that's supposed to be, what that should be. And again, these are, these are things that are profession is kind of culturally put on a lot of the new grads and stuff like i mean it's just kind of there there's like a mm -hmm. whole wellness world i mean instagram sure doesn't help with this <laughs> stuff right because you've got like all these it's it's a whole thing and i like it you know mm -hmm. i mean you're gonna i've got i've got feathers and i've got all this stuff oh, around i like sure. crystals and i love it i yeah. love it right but i'm not gonna get lost there mm -hmm. and i think you've got a lot more strength coming in and going yeah i'm a farm boy i'm funny like whatever then then to try to make everything fit into this tidy box of yeah. how the because that's actually how you spook the the shen away anyway is trying totally. to constrain it and all that because it feels it man like that that's that's the truth of it is is i think if we are talking shen and how to to calm a client's spirit it it, it senses that in authenticity it senses like there's something there's something not quite right in this zone versus walking out of your car with your whiskey water bottle, right? Immediately, the, the entire client is like, oh, I can actually just be me. And that, that healing yeah. that comes from that is huge. That's it. So this is the leadership. This is the mirror universe part, inside, outside, right? Like if I don't let myself just be me, how do I expect to create an environment where other people feel comfortable being themselves? Mm -hmm. So now I'm pretending to be somebody I'm not. You're pretending to be what you think I want to see in my office. Everybody's doing this dance. Yeah. We're missing the point. Totally. How are you going to see what's wrong with the client then if they're if they're pretending to be somebody that they're not? How, how are you actually going to get to the root of it? Uh, be, be, whether you use the, the five elements diagnosis of tone of voice or posture or, or bearing, if they're not actually being them and they're doing yeah. everything they can to layer on all. No, man, like it, it, it makes a huge difference, particularly in the field that, that we're in. Yeah. I think that there's, uh, here's something for the listeners. There's a lot of techniques about creating rapport. Actually, let me frame this. I had one of my jujitsu teachers uh, is also an acupuncturist. Very, very smart dude. Very, I've learned a lot from our conversations. And one of the things I said to him, we've got this idea, uh, if there's people listening, don't do martial arts and stuff, that's okay. But uh, there's this idea called off-balancing is basically what it is. And it's kazushi is the word in Japanese. And it basically means off-balance or to, to crumble somebody's foundation. And this is for the martial arts stuff. You don't want to crumble your patients, right? But you can't do anything. All the cool judo throws and leg sweeps and all that stuff, you can't do any of it without kazushi, without off balance. Because if somebody's balanced, their structure's good, the physics won't allow you to tip them over, right? So you've mm. got to have some way to kind of create this opportunity, this window to open, to enter and make the kind of change you want to make. Mm. So we were talking, we were talking about this martial arts stuff. And I said, what do you think? I mean, this is granted, it's like 20 years ago, right? But I said, what do you think the kazushi analog is in for healing, for acupuncture? Mm. And he didn't skip a beat. He looks at me and he goes, rapport. And I was oh. like, that is unexpected of an answer. But immediately my brain's just like, yeah. he's right. Yeah. You know, 
So I started thinking about that and it's like, okay, so here's the thing for the listeners. There are a ton of techniques to develop rapport with people, especially now where we have YouTube and things like that, where you can learn charisma and you can learn body language and you can learn all this. There's techniques, right? You know, you want to have a nice, strong spine and all this kind of stuff and open posture. They taught us this in in acupuncture school in clinical counseling class we had. And they said, I'll never forget this because they said, they said, you need to have a square posture that's open, lean forward, right? Eye contact, and then relax your body. (laughs) Five steps. Five steps. Yes. So, so, so that way the patient knows yeah. you're listening, yeah. right? To create the feeling oh of my. connection, mm-hmm. to create the rapport, you run this checklist. I thought that is madness. Mm-hmm. Wouldn't it be easier if I just cared about what they were saying? A weird, weird thought. <laughs> right. And then just let the body language kind of do its thing. Yeah. There's another one too, mirroring. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, you know, if you're if if you're nodding, I nod. And if you're touching your ear, then I'll touch mine too, so we can create rapport. This is good to be aware of. It's good to study these things. It's good to have a, a conscious understanding of subconscious human communication. I think it's very good. But what mm-hmm. I'll say is that if you're doing that as a technique, that's a very low level of trying to create connection. But what we can do instead is we can use those things as diagnostics. So instead of trying to monkey my way into rapport with you, I can start to notice, hey, we just touched our heads at the same time. Mm-hmm. Ah, cool. And then just let that be, that, that's it. It's not something you make happen, but once it's on your radar, once your reticular activating system has got the idea of mirroring or open body language or whatever, you can start to notice that stuff. And it's the same thing, like you said, with the five element tone of voice. I don't want to be consciously having machinations about how I modulate my tone of voice to try to like impose my will on how this interaction is going to be rebalanced. Mm-hmm. It's too much for me. I, yeah. I might be wrong here. Maybe it's a growth opportunity. I don't know. But I would much rather use that knowledge to just start to assess the situation a little bit. I don't have to change anything, but I could notice. I mean, when 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 I was looking into, uh, I was making this workshop called the the Dowen Practice, and essentially trying to to teach non TCM practitioners or acupuncturists how to kind of embody some of the philosophical principles of what we learn in Eastern medicine into their sessions, right? And um, I went I went through like all of the classics I could find, and I got another friend of mine, um, and you know she she teaches the classics at this acupuncture college, and like we dug deep looking for every reference of a sage practitioner, you know, these like historical sure. references of the perfect, almost godly practitioner, which is really fun. Uh, you know, things came up like they have x-ray vision and they can tell the future and they're immortal, you know, like all these like, okay. But there were a couple things that I found very interesting and, and I started to score them by the frequency and regularity in which they came up in the classics. And and uh, the the top two by by far were observation, observation of nature in the same way that you could just sit and watch a a spring, you know, watch a tree, whatever it is, you just kind of this open, relaxed observation and just noticing like, oh, a leaf fell. That's cool. Not like the leaf fell because just like a leaf fell. Like that is one of the most important traits is just simply observing. And then the next was interesting enough, authenticity being, being you being truly yourself. But, But I think that that's, maybe i'm off here but kind of what you're saying it's like not not trying to come up with all of these theories and reasons but just simply open observation and once you've spent the time 
doing doing the work, you know, going to school, studying the books, bringing all of the knowledge in, really thinking about it, and it sort of becomes implicit memory, then you can openly observe without creating more stories, coming up with reasons why, just more of an intuitive idea as to what's going on with the client, if that makes sense. It does. I mean, if you look at, um, I mean, it's like I said about market research, listen first and mm-hmm. then talk. Yeah. You got to pay attention. And it's the same thing with the scientific method. It's not make a hypothesis and test it. It's make observations, generate a hypothesis. These are mm-hmm. distinct steps. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. I, I think that, I think you're onto something. It seems universal. You know, yeah. when you start seeing the same kinds of things in different contexts, it's like, okay, I'm going to pay attention to this here. Mm-hmm. What's going on? Mm-hmm. But that's also kind of fun because if you're going to try to use the scientific method and systems thinking and get feedback, you want to have clean data and clean signal, which Mm -hmm. means not projecting on the patient Mm -hmm. and trying to get them to be as authentic as they can so you can actually find out what's going on. Totally. Because the more they're lying to themselves, the more they're going to be lying to you by default. Just like if somebody says, you know, oh yeah, I eat healthy. You know, it's always, I, I don't know about you, but like all my patients, all they eat is fish and rice. And vegetables. They're the oh, healthiest well, on paper. Like their diets are perfect. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. like, how is this? How am I slamming down chocolate bars yeah. and, and, you know, sneaking ice cream when the kids aren't looking and all my patients are, are eating, uh, you know, fish yeah. and broccoli all the time. Mm-hmm. It, it's, it's, and it's not to catch people and shame them. It's, it's mm-hmm. to, to play and go, listen, look, isn't that fun how we trick ourselves? Isn't that interesting? Right. Mm-hmm. Let's ex- explore that a little bit. Maybe we're going to need to get a food diary or whatever. You know, we're going to have to bring in some systems, something a little more logical where we can't bend the truth so much and, and all that. But that's, that's only to get a clear signal, mm-hmm. to get clear information so that we can start to make some detached clinical observations and decisions about how to iterate your treatment moving yeah. forward, yeah. how to do a proper experiment without freaking out about it. So you can't, you can't decouple people's emotions from these factual things if your emotions are all over the place too. That's at mm-hmm. least what I've found so far. Yeah. So the more I accept myself, flaws and all, go, okay, you know, I was short with the kids today. I don't like that, but I can admit it. I can talk about it. I can say to my wife, like, I'm way grumpier today than I want to be or than I meant to be. That's a skill. Mm-hmm. I practice that so I can hopefully be a better dad, right? But also so that I practice the meta skill of just acknowledging that the weird stuff I'm doing when I'm doing it and go, oh yeah, this is uh, something that I, I wasn't consciously choosing, but I want to make it more conscious. I'm going to do something about that. And now that I've walked that path a bunch, a bunch of times, and I plan to keep walking that path, whenever somebody comes into my world and I see what they're doing, I can guide them through that same kind of path if they need it with a sense of compassion and play and curiosity and exploration because I'm comfortable on that path. It's not a treacherous, perilous journey where if I find out what's around the next bush, you know, my whole sense of self is going to collapse and there's an existential dread. Mm-hmm. Right. There's we, something we you just said that was kind of baked in there. Like it, I, I, I want to point that out because I think it's super important that um, you said, I'm feeling a little bit short-tempered with my kids today, which in this, in this conversation, you know, having gotten to know you over this time, it makes sense that you would say that. But I think a lot of people would say, my kids are really irritating me today. Like what a huge <laughs> difference in, in how that's spoken, right? I'm right. feeling a little bit short-tempered with my kids. You say to your wife, I, I, and using these I statements, which we know theoretically, and, and, you know, most of us know in the emotional world, you say I statements. But the fact that that you did so, it, it paints a lot. And what I find so interesting is you did so without without batting an eye. Like it's such an implicit thing that you just said. 
I'm feeling a little bit short-tempered. And a lot of my clients, they, they don't have that. And what I mean to point out here is, is I find I have to step way back, going way back to first principles again. It's like even that little tiny statement is a huge opportunity for a lot of people to grow within. It's, it's just learning how to take responsibility for your own state. You're, yes, you're exactly right. Um, the, the whole answer to that is that it's both. Like, mm. They are being obnoxious, <laughs> and I yeah. am being irritable. Yeah, but there's only one of those things that I have any power over. Mm-hmm. So that's where I'm going to put my spotlight. Right, I can't control. Like some days, you know, they they didn't they woke up on the wrong side of the bed, mm-hmm. or they're just going to fight about whatever. I don't they're know. Just I, don't know. I mean, because I'm like, <laughs> I work I work online now, all all online, which means I got rid of my clinic, you know, and it, which is it's in good hands. Like the patients got continuity of care. I feel really good about the transition, but. I, I have a home office. I work from home, which means I'm more dad now than I've ever been, mm. which brings its own set of challenges, right? But it's a different domain to seeing patients or personal growth for my own self or whatever, but the same principles apply. So I try not to waste my breath or my my E, my attention on things that I don't have leverage over mm-hmm. and can't can't influence in some way, right? Now I'll 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 press into things I don't have a lot of leverage on and if a crack opens up, so for example, like with the kids, maybe they're just hungry, you know, Hey, I made some hard boiled eggs eat, right? Maybe there's a little influence I can have to kind of calm things down, but you're, you're exactly right. This stuff, I think starts to become second nature where we go, okay, what, what can I be accountable for on my half of the situation, whatever it is, right? And, and how can I impose my own I call it autology. There was no word for this, so I had to kind of make one up. But it's basically like the study of your own self. Mm-hmm. How how can I how can I do that in a way where I can become more self-authoring so that I can one get out of the situation a little bit without being so grumpy, like back myself down, and then two start to develop habits where I respond differently to just total chaos and, and bedlam in, in my house, right? But three, this meta skill of just practicing that and going, yeah, this is, you know, I, I don't want to be this grumpy. I don't know what's going on. I'm grumpier than, than I want to be. And, and I'm going to say that to whoever will listen and, you know, do something about it. Mm-hmm. But all that is basically to tie into this general idea, which you want to go to first principles. It's like, why are we in medicine, right? It's to try to help people yeah. live a good life. And so I, I want to try to self-medicate my own mind, not with pharmaceuticals and numbing agents or stimulants or, I mean, I'll get into some tea and stuff, but like, I, I want to medicate my own mind in a balanced way with my own thoughts and energetics and willpower and connection to whatever's true in there uh, as much as I can. Because, I mean, it's, it's totally self-fulfilling. It makes for a better life. It just does. I feel like with somebody with a growth mindset, we want to explore these kinds of different states. And sometimes it just means acknowledging when you're grumpy, you know, but then if the patient comes and they've got their own stuff in the way, I know that territory really well. And Mm -hmm. it's just kind of a matter of, I mean, I've I've had new patients come in and I just look at, you know, the the nice lady, but I just look at her and I'm like, you seem overwhelmed. Are you you doing okay with everything? And it's like, we've just met. Mm -hmm. And because that's not threatening for me to go there myself, I have a, a higher probability I can navigate that terrain with other people without triggering too many of their defenses and hackles. Yeah. And that's the kind of stuff you can't get out of those classes where they teach you how to mirror people or control your tone of voice. It just has to come off of who you are. Just like when 
my lady would cut my hair. It's just who she is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, I just uh, finished this workshop uh, with uh, Byron Katie. If you're not familiar with Byron Katie, she does the work. And, and something you said really reminded me of, of her. And I've never thought about it this way before. But the question you asked is, <clears throat> why, why did I get into medicine? Because I want to help people. And within the work of, of Byron Katie, she kind of rephrases things, right? If, if you're familiar with the process. So it would be, I got into medicine because I want to help people. You can then say, I got into medicine because I want people to help me. I got into medicine because I want or because people want me to help them. So you kind of rephrase all of these things and see how it fits. And and I find that a lot of people do get into medicine because of that, that second one. I got into medicine because I I want to heal myself. And that's why I got into medicine. And it's like, once we move through that process, then we move into the second process of I can actually show up and, and help others. It all ties back in the same overarching conversation that we've been having here, which is you got to do the work. You got to, you got to start with you, get your, get your house in order, as they say. And then from there you can, you can help others. And, um, and if it's okay with the, you, yeah. I'm like, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm, I'm basically just agreeing with you. Yeah. yeah I, I, I think that that's, um, it gets interesting because then we have to define help and then there's how much of what somebody wants versus what they need. And then who are you to be the arbiter of that? And mm-hmm. and you've just, you, you've got to be comfortable with that balance. I would yeah. say that's, you know, that's yeah. it. We just can't uh, fixate on it. Another learned skill, I think with, with time and practice, but, but if it's okay with you, I'd like to, I'd like to swing back to this, this other thing that I'm quite curious about. And as, as my audience is kind of a variety of different practitioners, it's this idea of the, the nonlinear practice. You know, you mentioned you've transitioned to being 100% online. And, and I think this is fantastic because of the people who are listening who are massage therapists, I strongly believe in this thing that I'm calling off-the-table skills, like awesome, do the clinical work, but also maybe shift your attention to developing some other skill that can be done online or something else. And then certainly for uh, the acupuncturists who can do herbs and dietary therapy and things like that. So what was that transition like for you going from being the hands-on practitioner, seeing people hour by hour or whatever your, you know, your, your time lot was to being at home doing things on Zoom or Zoom, okay. I shouldn't say Zoom, but online at home. Yeah. Not Zoom. So <laughs> I've got <laughs> videos about that too on my YouTube. I'm like health professionals shouldn't be on Zoom all day. Yeah. Like there's, I've got polarizing ideas. I'm sure I do it to stimulate thought. You know, we can always I'll give you some caveats. We can always think big and then walk it back mm-hmm. to something that's actionable and something you can implement, right? But if we, if we refuse to think big, then we're never going to know where that kind of, like we leave some, you know, like people say, leave money on the table. It's like you leave some growth on the table. If you're not willing to think big and then walk it back, if you'll only think about, uh, oh, here's where I am and here's what my next thing is. And everything else is no because. Mm-hmm. No, because, no, because, which is really interesting. In a, in a field so influenced by Taoism, I, I've run across a fair amount of very closed minds, which is really, and oftentimes it's the people who have the most like uh, Tao quotes on their Facebook profile. They're kind of self-medicating themselves because <laughs> they haven't yet internalized that stuff. Yeah. Right. You know, it's really, uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's not, I'm not judging. I have the same thing to different extents with all my own little quirks and all that. But it's like, listen, if we're going to have this Taoist undercurrent, that is the foundation of how we interact with our patients and the world and everything else. We also shouldn't be talking ourselves out of opportunities all the time and creating barriers that don't even exist. Mm-hmm. So there's my, my one caveat on that. Um, another one would be that 
for me personally, um, I've always had an eye towards efficiency and systems. And I've, I've always liked ideas a lot. And uh, the same jujitsu uh, instructor who we were talking about rapport, he, he told me one day, he said, you're more of an idealist. And, and I said, okay, what context, what do you mean as opposed to what? And he said, as opposed to a humanist, like you're, you're better with ideas than with people. And I, I thought that was interesting and he was right. Um, but since I've, I've shored up that part of my personality and I've realized that I was pretty well focused on ideological things of like how systems should work and putting things together. And uh, it's not all or nothing. It's just that that skill set was leading the other one, if that makes sense, mm -hmm. which is a whole other conversation because once we identify our skill sets and our strengths and then our weaknesses, most people say, well, I better shore up my weakness, but actually we might do well to just double down on the thing we're good at Agreed. and, you know, and hire somebody. <laughs> like if you're not good at accounting, like get a bookkeeper, right? Mm -hmm. Don't waste your time with that. And just do the other thing. Um, anyway, for me, I've realized that there, there was an area of richness uh, that that I wanted to develop more, which is more human connection. And this is a growth process that's been going on, you know, over a decade plus of, of kind of having one eye on that and, and realizing that there's so much more than just the world of the mind in terms of like, it's so hard to describe, but like the mental satisfaction of helping somebody get their shoulder better, right? And now they can move their arm and now they can kayak versus the visceral feeling of like, wow, you know, I had a, a part of that person's life. Mm -hmm. That's a different, it's just a different way to, to see the world. And, yeah. you know, our culture is uh, pretty left-brained. Um, there's a lot of reasons for that. There's things we're exposed to as kids that I think set us up for more left-brained emphasis. There's, it's just what our culture rewards, right? There's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of dark stuff that, that benefits from having us not be connected humans. So there's a cultural lens that we have to kind of wipe clean uh, and open that up. So anyway, with all this, I, I always had an eye for, for growth for the profession, always. I mean, I was fresh out of school and I was teaching CEU classes and the administrators at the, the university were like, this is very ambitious, you know, as they kind of like laughed at me. And I was like, well, I mean, what I'm doing is valid. Like, what do you, you know, mm -hmm. how long do you want me to wait before? <laughs> I've always been like this, always been pushing it. And I had good teachers and they always pushed it. And that's, it, it's just something that, you know, I, I don't think I can dumb that down or, or numb it out. So when it came to working online, I was basically a solution waiting for a problem. I had Eastern medicine, all these solutions, all these skill sets, tools, herbs, all these things. And I was like, how, how, how can I implement all this stuff for the right people to solve the problem? And my idea mind was grinding on that. And I wound up creating um, courses around like 2017 was when I started to really get traction with that. And I'd been trying to build stuff since like probably 2010. I mean, these are early days for internet courses. This was like an ebook. If you sold a $5 ebook back then, this was a big deal, right? Oh, yeah. So I, you know, I was working on things and I set up like a little e-com shop. I didn't really have uh, the anatomy and physiology of a business or especially an online business. I hadn't quite worked all that out mm. yet. And so a lot of things have become more sophisticated since then. So around 2017, I started building a, a program and um, had really good teachers. I was learning different facets of Eastern medicine, how to develop clinical clarity for people so that we could help complex chronic conditions with, and here's the balance, with a, a program that's universal for people with issues like fibromyalgia or Lyme disease, these kinds of things, but also has enough unique 
modulation within it so that you can provide a custom and bespoke path for people so that you're not just jamming folks into a box, right? That was the balance. So started to figure that out, um, got some proof of concept. And basically at the time, like 2017, 2018, a lot of the online business uh, coach consulting kind of marketplace was coming up. And the business model for them was pretty much you would send ads out on Facebook or, you know, uh, whatever, social media. And then you would pull people into like a webinar or a video so they could learn more about what you do. And then they would schedule a call, which you call a discovery call, a sales call, a consultation, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, enchantment call. They had all these names for these. It's just a sales call. I haven't heard enchantment call before. That's a good one. Might as well be, you know, you you dress it up. And I did the same thing. I was working those models and I was like, well, let's call it a discovery call because we'll discover what's going on and discover Mm -hmm. if it's a good fit. You know, I had integrity with that, but it was looking back, it was pretty cheesy, you know, doing these things and trying to make something look like what it wasn't. Yeah. Right. It's, it's a consult. It's a sales call. Like that's, let's just call it what it is. So you know, that, that model's good. Um, and you can make a lot of money. You can help a lot of people with those kinds of models. The trouble is that when you do that and it works, now you have a schedule full of calls. So a lot of the reason to go online is to create geographical freedom because you can work online from anywhere. But geographical freedom doesn't mean anything if you don't have time freedom. Because mm-hmm. if you're in the prettiest place, maybe you're in Iceland outside of a Skogafoss or whatever waterfall thing, it's beautiful, but you're glued to your phone because you've got Zooms and all this stuff. You don't have the time freedom to enjoy the geographical freedom. Mm-hmm. So you got to have both, yeah. right? And I'm going to present an extreme version of this. Walk it back to your comfort level. That's what I, what I try to, you know, try to say to people. You don't have to do it the same way I am doing it, but it's good to know that's possible, that there's kind of, there's outer edges. So what happens is you get this full schedule and if you're doing a brick and mortar at the same time, which I was, I did a hybrid model for a long time, that becomes a lot of time demands. So mm-hmm. now you've got two businesses. Um, what I later found out, and I, you know, I got involved with like different types. I was constantly doing different courses and mentorships and, and mastermind groups and all this kind of stuff. I was talking to really just brilliant people in different areas of life and then finding the principles and bringing them home. So what wound up happening is uh, I, I changed the model of how I was doing it online. And it's really crazy when you take something that you just have a baseline assumption that needs to exist and you just go, what if it didn't? Mm-hmm. What if there were no consultations? What if there were no sales calls? Right. What if, you know, and, and you can just, you can do this with anything. Right. So like to go online for an acupuncturist, what if there's no acupuncture? Hmm. and you create these constraints and then that it's like wood and metal right you start chopping branches off and now you've got to find ways to grow around that Hmm. and it's a cool thought experiment and then even cooler when you start to implement it so with practitioners uh there's point a where you're just starting out in practice and it's like oh my god my schedule is empty you know I've got imposter syndrome. I hope the next five years go by quickly, right? It's this kind of thinking where it's like, I want to go back and slap myself, you know, like enjoy that time. But at some point, if you hang in there, you'll get what you wanted. You'll get the full schedule. And then you're at point B where you find out if what you thought you wanted is what you wanted now that it's built. Mm -hmm. And now this is a different deal. This is burnout. This is where practitioners that are successful uh, and really good, a lot of them are really good. I mean, you get a full schedule, like everybody knows you, but like some of the the folks that come in, um, 
to my world, they'll say things like, I've been doing this for decades and I, I, I don't know, I, I can't look at the next 20 years thinking I'm just going to be doing more of this with no opportunity to grow yeah. what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And that's a brave admission. And I also like to recognize that we can want something, we can want the next level without hating where we are. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like you can love your practice. Right. Like I loved it was hard. It was it was gut wrenchingly hard for me to leave my brick and mortar. But I knew I had to for my next stage of life. I knew I had to. I love those people. Fantastic. Pretty much every patient I've ever had has been amazing. So it's it's hard, right? Especially if you really like what you're doing. But if you know there's a next stage, you know, you can you can you can leave what you love to go after something you love more in mm-hmm. business, right? It's, or you can have, have your cake kind of situation where you keep your brick and mortar. You just dial down your days. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's what I did for the last, I don't know, year and a half or so of my brick and mortar. I would just work two days a week, half days. And the rest of the time I would spend kind of shorting up online stuff and, and taking yeah. care of that. And that was great. You know, it was, it was really, really nice. It was really nice. A hybrid model has massive advantages, especially if you're the kind of person who wants to focus more on problem solving and less on like a fluff and buff kind of relaxation acupuncture experience, right? For like tourists, which is, I'm not judging. They're both good. I think they're yeah. both valid. You know, I mean, there've been times in my life where I'm like, I just want to lay on the table and get poked. I don't even have a goal or a problem or anything. Just, I just want to like, zip. I get it. It's yeah. not, that one's better. Right? I mean, that's but if my you choice want to do problems- most of the time, to be honest. I, I, I like that, that you're relaxed. <laughs> yeah, somebody help me turn it off for a minute. All good. So I, yeah. I get that. Both tremendously valuable. It but is. Yeah. And that was a misconception. Focused. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that, that was my own. I, I had to go through that growth process, right? Because mm-hmm. in point A, if you've got an empty schedule and people are like, hey, I just need a fluff and buff. I'm never going to come back or refer anybody, but I will take one hour of your time and I'll pay you. You're like, oh, yeah bring it on. Right. <laughs> and then you start growing. You're like, I don't got time for that. Yeah. And then later you go, you know what? Sure. Come on in. I'll, I'll work you in. Yeah. I'll give you a nice time while you're here. Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, I lived in a, a very pretty place. A lot of tourists would come, especially in the summertime and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it was like, you're never going to see them again, but it, you know, they can weave into the price. It's fine. Yeah. It's fine. I had to grow through that. So when you get to point B, all of a sudden you got your full schedule and now you're kind of, uh, I, I, capped and trapped i call it like you're capped in terms of like you you, you're only selling so many hours in the day Mm -hmm. and you're trapped because if you do anything to you risk taking a hit in terms of your income and all that you're kind of trapped in the model you've built because if you start taking days off there goes more hours and now it's like you're making Mm -hmm. you know three-fifths of the income you were making because you took two days off a week or whatever. Uh, Vacations are hard to take because you're like, oh my goodness, there's the cost of the travel and the lodging, but also the missed week of work. Oh my goodness, that's so much money, right? And then of course, you got a certain percentage of clients that if they can't book in because they're only available on Wednesday afternoons, now you've lost clients, period. Not only have you lost the days of work, but you've lost potential clients, meaning potential referrals. Like There's a lot of ways where that can affect your, your bottom line. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's really only looking at bottom line. There's, I mean, there's other stuff going on too, um, that all gets affected. So mm-hmm. what most practitioners do in that stage is then it's like, okay, well, let's hire somebody. So if I get another acupuncturist working for me or under me or whatever, now I've got more hours to sell in the mm-hmm. day and I can maybe take a day off and they can come in, which is great, except that's the ideal world. But when we have humans, real humans, that brings human variability. So the acupuncturist you just brought in to work for you And you've trained them for the last six weeks and things are finally humming along. And then they just fell in love and they're moving to Florida. And you're like, 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <You know>. just... <laughs> and that, I mean, that's best case. I've, I've talked to other practitioners that are very specialized with a lot of IP, right? I mean, they've got like intellectual property, they've got systems, processes, all that. They have a clinic, they're maxed out, they're super busy. And then they take on an associate, train them up. Six months later, the associate's got that intellectual mm-hmm. property as much as they think they have. One block away, opening up another clinic, taking half the patient base <sighs> with them. Brutal. It's just predatory, mm-hmm. right? That doesn't mean don't hire people. It doesn't mean don't trust anybody. It's not that. But it means, okay, that's one outlet to try to handle this like point B thing. And then some practitioners will start other projects, right? Like a podcast like this, or um, they'll start teaching seminars on techniques and do things to kind of give back to the profession as a way to grow, mm-hmm. you know, which is good. Um, the only thing that I would say with that is, again, it's, it's pretty time intensive. And if you're doing seminars in person that you, you know, you have to travel for that. So you've got now flight times, a whole weekend, you're back to selling your time again, and you got to promote those things mm-hmm. or have somebody else do it. So no matter what you do at that point, you're, you're building something in a new way. You're going to have to put energy into it. Uh, you might run into scaling issues where you've got people problems, all that kind of stuff. So what I've been focusing on instead is going online and then not having the Zoom calls and all that stuff, right? Because that's the same thing. Your calendar's full and now you can hire somebody. You can hire a sales rep to get on those. You can hire a big old closer to come in and sign people up to your program, except you get people problems again. Mm-hmm which it can work. It totally can work. But if you're trying to avoid that, then there's, there's some really cool systems that you can put into place. And it's a lot of um, different pieces working together in uh, aggregate ways where the effects start to amplify. So I mentioned before the anatomy of the business is like an attraction piece, uh, conversion or education, some kind of sales process, right? Which means you need an offer in there. Mm-hmm. You've got to have a well-defined offer that people can that's the portal into your like world. You know, they've got to, there's got to be some kind of doorway for them to go through. And then you've got to actually have a program or a process that delivers on your promises up mm-hmm. front. Right. So you can build all these things in a way where they kind of interlink and feed into each other organically. And what I've found is with the right systems, I don't need any appointments or consultations whatsoever. And I'm calling this point C because it, from point A, that white space on your calendar freaks you out. Point B, there is no white space. Mm-hmm. Point C, the white space is a welcome reward. You've yeah, earned yeah. it. Yeah. Right? So this is, this is my way of trying to take Taoism and implement it in a practical and what some people may look at and consider a mundane way of like having to do with running a business and making money and mm-hmm. these kinds of things. But to try to do it in a way where my calendar's empty and people are still getting the results. Yeah. I mean, do I do nothing all day? No, my, my calendar is empty, but my days are full. Mm-hmm. I record content. I'm writing. I'm like making program updates. I'm, I'm doing all kinds of stuff, mm-hmm. but it's on my timeline, on my terms, when my brain is functioning really well, mm-hmm. if I want to wake up and uh, take it slow in the morning, cup of tea, let my kids climb on me. I'll do a Sudoku to like warm my brain up, right? Like this kind of mm-hmm. stuff. There's nobody coming to say, Jeremy, you're late for your appointment. Even this, like to meet with you, it's like on my calendar, there's like this glaring dot of like, Hey, there's something on this day. You know what Mm -hmm. I mean? It's, it's really cool. It's, 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 it's a different deal. And some practitioners just because we're humans, uh, that level of freedom is terrifying. Yeah. It took me a long time to settle into that. 
because in, in a very similar way, it was like the exact same um, peak and, and trough for the up and down that you were describing from A, B, and C. But once I started to settle into the C and realize like, okay, I'm, I'm making a sustainable living, um, arguably a better living than I was before, but every minute of my day is my choice. And there are activities I could do in the day that will will increase the amount of profit, but it turns out that's not entirely necessary. So that that moment, it's like that that same panic that I'm sure a lot of retired folks go through when it's like, oh, without my nine to five, what do I do? So there's there's certainly mm-hmm. fear involved in there. But before long, you realize, well, now now is a great opportunity to really investigate the the true value that you can offer to the world when you're not concerned necessarily about filling every hour in order to make enough money to do the things. It's like, well, what can I do every single day to provide the maximum value to people, be it other practitioners or to the clients that I'm seeing, or just to my neighbor next door? And what, what a fantastic yep. shift that it happens in in oneself and in life when when you do get over that sort of empty calendar terror and you start to see uh, <laughs> the, uh, the the value and the and the, the peace and the joy that that comes from that. Not an int- easy transition because I think everybody's model will be slightly different. I think, as you were mentioning, there are systems and there are processes in which pretty much everybody can use universally. But each iteration of that, what it looks like for one person versus the other, I suspect there's a lot of variation in that, which would require a fair amount of uh, contemplation, a fair amount of work to figure that out. But I, I strongly believe it is possible, particularly this day and age when we have access to internet well, yeah. virtually everywhere. No, I mean, we're yeah, we're sitting on an incredible opportunity. It's incredible. So yeah, that's, I mean, that's why I work on fundamental first principles, things that are not likely to change uh, from domain to domain or from specialty to specialty or niche to niche or practitioner to practitioner, uh, yet at the same time, develop the skills of not just having a what level understanding of like, okay, here's how to run this business model, but also a why. How do all these pieces go together? What's happening here? Right. Mm -hmm. So then when we have like um, some practitioners might be specialized in a whole different field. Uh, you know, like I do complex chronic is the, the Lyme mold exposure, fibromyalgia, like these kinds of things, long haulers, right? This is coming, uh, reactivated Epstein bar, candida, all these like gnarly, mm-hmm. mainly damp type conditions that are recalcitrant. They're not well treated by, um, conventional medicine, like these kinds of things. But if a practitioner is doing uh, fertility or menopause or dermatology or whatever, there's going to be nuances and distinctions that should not be carbon copied from what I'm doing, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's not going to land. The way I talk to my my people about the complex chronic, you don't always want to talk to um, you know a, a woman dealing with infertility. She may not have the same priorities or values or pain mm. points. So we have to develop the skills so that you can find those things yourself and then take, take a nonlinear model and evolve it and adapt it to fit the situation of that practitioner and their niche market. Uh, because even like mine hasn't been fixed and static. I'm still changing things. I'm yeah. still playing and adapting and evolving it. But it, it's more about learning that skill of how to maneuver and be responsive mm-hmm. and use iteration and feedback, right? Yeah. But not violate fundamental principles mm-hmm. at the same time and, and use that as a bedrock to create systems so that you can kind of check the boxes of like, do I have good market research system? Do I have patients, prospective patients? And again, I'm Okay, to be clear, I'm using language like patience and practice. I don't actually use that language. These aren't my patients. This isn't my practice. Hmm. These are these are members that I work with. Yeah. Right. I'm I'm not trying to have the legal 
because you're going to have every practitioner going, oh, you had this guy on. And I'm not licensed in that state. I can't say I'm using the language practitioners are comfortable with, but that's mm-hmm. not how I define my relationships, right? When it comes down to it. But I'll just, there's my caveat. So do I have ways for potential patients to find me? Are they finding me? Uh, when they find me, do they like what they see? Mm-hmm. Are there places, do I have a place to bring them back to where they can go deeper into my world and start to see what I can see? Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times when we've been doing this a while, we can see the future for people they, they have no idea about, right? You go up and down that mountain so many times, they have no idea what's around the next bend. Mm-hmm. I love solving, uh, I call them success problems for the patients or the practitioners too that come in. Like they want to solve some problem like, oh, how do I get more new patients? We can solve that, right? But once they're in your world, right, that's a success problem. Now, do you have actually a good offer for them? Like we need to start solving things ahead of time so yeah. that you've got a good place to bring them. Same thing for the patients. You know, you get somebody feeling better. All right, check this out. I'll tell you two things. This is really, this stuff blows my mind. You get a patient who's had a debilitating illness for like 20 years, right? They are now in a relationship with a spouse and they've developed archetypical roles Mm. around that. You've seen this, right? Mm -hmm. Anybody, any practitioner like paying attention, you've seen this. What gets really interesting is like, oh, you know, this person starts feeling better and then the spouse starts doing weird stuff. Mm-hmm. Hey, surprise, I brought you a bunch of donuts. Uh, I know you love them. Yes. You know? I, yeah. What is going on there? Mm-hmm. Right? Well, we can see that this the spouse doesn't have a new role to play. So they're trying to keep the person kind of sick because that's what they're used to. They're not doing it on purpose. It's mm-hmm. not malicious. Right? So you're going to have to have a conversation with your spouse about that. Guess what? I'll make a video ahead of time where I'm having the conversation with your spouse about it. You can just hit play. They'll watch it. I recorded this three years ago mm-hmm. because I knew you were going to have this problem today. Yeah. Right? You can build systems where you're starting to do this stuff where every time you go on a journey with somebody, you're leaving breadcrumbs back for the next person and the next person and the next person. Mm-hmm. And what that does, uh, multiple things it does, but one of them is it lets them know implicitly that you're a pro and you know what you're doing. Because guess what? I called it. I mean, I recorded that video back when I had like a bunch of hair, a top knot or something, you know, like this is a long time ago. It's the same problem, right? Mm -hmm. I I see your future. I know you're going to hit this, right? But then the second thing is it actually helps them solve the problem in front of them. It takes some of that difficult conversation. And now it's been articulated in a way that's, again, compassionate, exploratory, like, hey, Mm -hmm. I know that she's been sick and that lets you be the knight in shining armor. You're used to that. But guess what? She's going to be getting better. You need to find a new role in the relationship. Wouldn't it be cool if you had more of an equitable partnership and not a damsel in distress all the time? Mm-hmm. Wouldn't that be cool? Don't worry. She's not going to outgrow you or not love you because she's vibrant now. She still loves you and she wants to actually be able to go take trips with you and enjoy the beach. Yeah. Right? So these kinds of things, I'll do this stuff, get it done ahead of time and it's there mm-hmm. and it's just waiting. And these are the kinds of systems where you can't do this in your clinic. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, maybe, but like... Time. Oh, yeah, for your next appointment, bring your husband in, actually. I want to talk to him. Uh, yeah, let's book no an extra 45 minutes for that conversation. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. possible. It's going to be $500, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. no way. Mm-hmm. But in the world I've created, I can charge a price for an annual membership, and I can just deliver, 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 like, all this stuff. Mm-hmm. So the second thing I'll say that's really kind of cool, along the same lines, practitioners aren't immune to that because what can happen sometimes is you'll get a spouse relationship where uh, one partner is the acupuncturist or whatever, and it's not their, you know, maybe they're a stay-at-home mom and they just do, they see patients three hours every Tuesday, 
right? And the the other um, partner has like a corporate job or something. Like, so there's like a breadwinner, mm-hmm. and then the healer is kind of just this like it's like a hobby that you get paid for sometimes. And it's just fun money. You know, we kind of save that. That's our vacation money or we use Mm -hmm. that to renovate the house or whatever. And the unspoken thing is that career wise, these two people are not on the same level Mm -hmm. whatsoever. Right. Yet. What if we start building fractal systems around this person's practice? And now they're not just an acupuncturist that's seeing people for two hours, you know, a week or if they have patients or whatever, but they're getting serious about doing something online that can actually scale. Mm-hmm. And they're bringing home six figures, and now that partner's got to go. I, I was the, I was the breadwinner. Totally. Why are you successful like this? I, like, yeah, it's good, but I, I, I don't like how things. This is change. I don't mm-hmm. like this, right? And now you got to deal with the partner's ego too. Yeah. It's really interesting because this stuff will stop. When we talk about the hero's journey and people staying in the shire, all this, the computer does the math instantly on this. Mm-hmm. Oh, I don't know. I don't know if that's for me. And they can't articulate it, but it's like, they don't want to rock the boat in their house. Mm-hmm. They don't want to build a non, they, they think they want to grow. They say they want to grow, but really they're terrified because they're going to have to have a conversation where their, their spouse might actually become the stay at home parent because they're out earning them. Mm-hmm. Right. This stuff is under the surface. And it's the same thing with people coming in for, for healing and health. So I get all that kind of stuff out of the way before a dime moves back and forth. I'm like, listen, here's the deal. Like if this works, are you ready to have hard conversations with your spouse? Are Mm -hmm. you ready to like meet your new version of yourself? Your new life is going to cost you your old one. Yeah. you, you know, know, it, it really price. Bring, brings the, the conversation pretty much full circle right back to this idea of, of being on this transformative journey. And those two words, man, like two very simple but powerful words, understanding that the, the healing process, it, it is transformative, as you said, regardless of whether it's a, a shoulder or a complex chronic condition. And then simultaneously, like it's, it's a journey. And in the same way that uh, if, if anybody's ever gone on a walkabout or a life journey or invested in a book, it's like, it's a journey. There are, there are distinct steps and it's harrowing at times and it's really hard at times. But on the other side of it, you, you come out as, as the, the healthy, vital, mature, the more fully developed version of yourself, right? And I think it's... Well, I mean, it's happening whether or not we want, like, it's happening regardless, yeah. whether or not we acknowledge it. Our whole life is, is happening on this cycle. We can try to stay stuck on one step, but that doesn't mean that the, the pressure of the process isn't yeah. going to always be there. I mean, it goes into the... It's not same, a choice to get on the no. merry-go-round. Like, we're already on it. We're on it. It's that, that five-element cycle, right? Of, through the conversation, I've noticed, uh, as you talk with your hands, you, you do the, the, the cycle, because that's it. Like, the cycle's going. The seasons are coming and going. Life is happening. And we can try and dig our heels in and stay put and resist that, that change. But it's you, know, you might as well jump in a river and try and swim upstream, right? Like, you're going downstream. It's going. So why not just... Take the time to to guide the journey the best as you can. Yeah. yeah, I mean, this is the thing. Like, even right now, we've got macroeconomic cycles. We've got all this stuff. It's a very unstable external world. And that's going to be happening whether we're aware of it or not. Mm-hmm. So my thing is like, okay, why don't you find, put systems in place and find ways to expand your work beyond where you live so that you can help people all over the planet that are like the best fits for you. Yeah. Because if you've got, if you've got very thin selection criteria, right? Like you want patients with a certain condition that you can help, that you enjoy, that you've got good methods for. And they're also the kind of people that can afford your services, that value your services, that'll listen to your advice, that aren't going to let their self-sabotage get in the way and on and on and on. You're filtering down the population, Mm -hmm. right? Not all those people are going to be in your small town. 
This is what I found. You know, what, what, a couple of them are in the Netherlands. There's somebody in the UK. There's somebody in Germany. There's a, there's a, a lady in Denmark, right? There's somebody in California. There's people in Canada. Like I, I've created systems where I can start to ping, 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 identify all these people, regardless of geography, and just get the, the people who are um, resonant, strong fits for the work I do mm-hmm. so that I don't have to worry about macroeconomic issues so much. You can do what's called geo-arbitrage, where you're going after um, places where there are more people in certain locations that are going to be resonant for your work. Mm -hmm. And then you can make a living, make an income from that. And then you can take that and you can just go spend it in your local community or however you see fit and do kind of more of a, almost like a Robin Hood kind of thing, where you're just moving money around in different ways. Mm -hmm. So we now have access to so much leverage. This just, it's, I find it's wildly untapped and that's why I'm so mouthy on social media and that's why I make these videos and that's why I've got practitioner trainings and whatever else, because it's not about just me like building up modern vitality and, and, you know, trying to do my thing there. It's about let's let this thing just go fractal and start affecting people everywhere, everywhere. There's no reason not to. I think, I think that is a beautiful point to tie, to tie a bow on our conversation because I think it really encompasses the, the entire message. And, and as we do wrap things up, you're on social media, obviously. Is, is there anywhere that people are, or where would people go to, to see what your work is and still so they can touch base with well, you? Well, um, I've got, so I've got two projects, right? I've got Modern Vitalities for Patients. Mm-hmm. And if you go to YouTube, and search Modern Vitality, you'll find that channel. Uh, I found once I started doing that, I had practitioners not banging down my door. Yeah. Uh, so I would get things from patients, but also practitioners coming, hey, you know, I want to be in your group. I want to learn. So I created a, what's called Damn Good Doctors Club, which is where we do the practitioner stuff. Perfect. So if they're practitioners, um, YouTube is uh, at Damn Good Doctors. Um, Instagram is at Damn Good Doctors. Facebook is Jeremy Cornish. I'm trying to get off of a lot of these things, but uh, for now they can find, find me there. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of videos. There's, there's all kinds of stuff to, to keep pushing, taking these training glitches that we've picked up subconsciously and just put them aside for a second mm-hmm. and just imagine what else is possible and then walk it back to whatever your realistic next step is in your practice. Brilliant. Yeah. And I'll put all that stuff in the show notes too. So this was a really awesome conversation. I'm, I'm very grateful again for the, the time you've taken that I was a, a uh, blip on the calendar. I'm grateful for that that time you <laughs> set aside for this discussion yeah. very much so. So thank you very much, Jeremy. It's been a yeah. pleasure. Yeah, I appreciate your perspective. Thanks for having me. Sure thing.